part of the goal was always to be uh, not just a pilot, but a missionary who flew an airplane. And I think that, that for me meant that I wasn't just flying routes or doing dropping off people or picking them up. It was that I was going to be hands-on with the people and using an airplane as a tool. We're trying to explain grace in a culture where a gift is an obligation. And so to be able to talk about grace, but have this picture of grace, which is the airplane. We come in, we don't charge. We save their life. We don't have any expectations. It's a free gift. All right, we are back in the studio, and today I sat down with Mark Palm. Mark is the founder of Samaritan Aviation. He's a missionary pilot in Papua New Guinea. This guy's got incredible stories of faith, of starting a new ministry, of being a missionary, and uh, and dealing with cancer. It's been a it's been a crazy season that he's gone through. So I invite you to listen along. I know you're going to be enriched and blessed by hearing more from Mark. You know, for me, it's been more of a family thing, aviation. My grandpa flew in World War II, and so he was an aviator. Then I grew up, my, my uncle flew airplanes. I actually had another uncle who died in an airplane crash um, before I was born. Um, and then my cousin flew for the military, and so it's kind of like aviation was a big part of my life growing up. And so, you know, initially, that was my goal, was to be a military pilot or a commercial pilot and uh, kind of see the world and make some money and, you know, have some adventures. And, you know, I heard the call, um, you know, begin when I accepted Christ when I was 10. That was obviously a big moment, a big shift in my life. And then um, when I was down in uh, Mexico, I had a chance to go down in, as a high schooler with my church youth group. I was raised in, up in Santa Cruz, California. And, and uh, you know, to back up just a little bit, I my father was a pastor, a minister, and, and so we uh, he started different churches and we kind of moved around a bit when I was younger. But when I was 13, we moved uh, to Santa Cruz and he ran a homeless mission. And, you know, that was really my first exposure to kind of this idea of, of being the hands and feet of Jesus in action more than just talking about it. And, uh, you know, I was raised in church every, every Sunday, whether I was sick or not, you know, two or three times a day, plus Wednesday night, plus every other time the church door was open. And, um, but to actually go and, and help somebody in the name of Jesus, not just tell them who God was, but actually do something, give them a coat when they're cold, um, you know, give them food when they're hungry. Uh, that had a big impact on me as a teenager. And, and so as a 16 year old, my church went down to Mexico to build houses. So I had a chance to go down with a youth group and uh, just see a different culture. You know, all of a sudden I'm seeing people that don't have anything and, uh, and realizing how blessed I am. And while we were there, we had a chance to do a devotional every morning. And so I, there was this old abandoned well down in uh, Mexico. And I'd, every morning I'd go out and sit in the same place, and we were going through Psalms 139. And I remember this about the fourth day there, just kind of soaking in the culture, the need, seeing everything around me, um, and just having this moment with God. And it, I was reading Psalm 139, and Talked about, you know, even if I'm there on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. And I started thinking about uh, the world and, and God just spoke to me. It was like an audible voice. It's hard to, ex to explain. And I haven't had this experience since that one moment in this way, but it was very clear. It was as if God was sitting right next to me. And he said, uh, this is what I heard. He said, Mark, I want you to use your passion for people in aviation to share my love in a remote part of the world. And that one moment completely changed my life. And how old, how old were you there? I was 16. 16 years old. Wow. And uh, came back 
to America, and uh, it was like, instead of what can I do to become a military pilot or what training do I need to become a commercial pilot, the question in my head was, what do I need to equip myself to go to the most remote place in the world uh, to fly airplanes and to share Christ? That was really what came out from that one moment. What a gift for a 16-year-old to get that word from God. I mean, I, I remember being much older than that and still not clear on where the Lord wanted me. And I think a lot of young people struggle with that. So talk to me about the process in your journey for becoming a missionary pilot. A lot's involved. I mean, I, I did some schooling when I was in college and uh, I didn't realize that, uh, that, mil- that uh, missionary pilots had to be mechanics too. So I'm like, I can't even change the oil in my truck. So this isn't going to work out for me. So to talk to us a little bit about your journey and what it takes to be a missionary pilot. Yeah, you know, one thing people don't realize is it is a long, a long journey. And um, for me, I was very similar to you. I didn't, I think I changed the oil in my car once in high school. My dad didn't work on cars. Um, and so it was really, the mechanical side was a means to an end. I, I ended up going to a small Bible school back in Florida and, uh, you know, started down that track first. I went there a year and uh, then I came back and... Um, started uh, my flight training when I was 19. I kind of did the unconventional route. Some people go to, to aviation schools that are specifically built around mission aviation, and I kind of piecemealed it together. I did my, my private uh, rating in, uh, up in Santa Cruz. I got my instrument in Carlsbad, I, instrument rating. I got my commercial rating in Santa Monica. I got my float plate rating in Alaska. So I kind of, you know, did it on the, as I had the funds and, and, um, and then I went to two and a half years of aircraft mechanic school. Um, and that was probably the hardest part for me. I, I didn't like mechanics. That wasn't something I was even interested in doing, but to me it was, uh, I had to have that to be able to go and, and answer the call. And so it was like, okay, here's two and a half years of my life doing something I don't even like to do what I know God has called me to do. And uh, thankfully, the, the flying side is Kept so amazing that, you know, <laughs> you can deal with <laughs> some of the other stuff. Turn wrenches for a couple hours, go fly for an hour at all. That's it'll right. all work out. <laughs> so Samaritan Air, it's, you've, you guys have been hustling now for over 20 years. When did that fit into the picture? When did you go like, okay, I'm going to go start myself. It wasn't like, I'm going to go fly for MAF or any other missions organizations. You started your own gig. Talk to me about that. Yeah, not something I recommend, <laughs> to be honest, but, you know, when God calls you. Now, for me, it's 19 uh, years old. I, I had a chance to go to Papua New Guinea the first time with a friend. Um, and we traveled the country. And, and um, you know, ever since I had that call at 16, my, the question in my head was, what does that mean? You know, when God calls you to a remote part of the world, as the, the call was, share my love in a remote part of the world, I'm like, what what is that? And Hearing about Papua New Guinea, had a chance to to go over there and see it, and um, just realize that and, and confirm in my heart that that's where God had called me. And part of the goal was always to be uh, not just a pilot, but a missionary who flew an airplane. And I think that that for me meant that I wasn't just flying routes or doing dropping off people or picking them up. It was that I was going to be hands on with the people and using an airplane as a tool. To facilitate that and and in the area that we went into um you know we spent time in the village we spent time asking questions uh, to the people what is it like what are your biggest struggles and it was really evident very quickly that medical access or lack of medical access was a huge need for them 
Um, and you know, there was, I'll tell you a little a story. We, we were on this Island and they brought this little girl uh, to us that had a, a tropical ulcer. And basically that's an infection that just starts kind of taking over your, whatever part of the body it's on. And, uh, this happened to be the leg of this little girl. And, um, you know, it had taken over about half of her lower leg. And, um, you know, she's looking at serious infection, potential uh, death, ultimately, if it doesn't get handled. And, you know, we had a $10 worth of medical supplies um, with some medical training, a little bit of medical training. And we were able to, to you know, wrap that wound, give her some medicine uh, and potentially save this little girl's life for like 10 bucks of worth of medical supplies. And, and that had a huge impact. And it was like, you know, New Guinea, people don't realize it's the second largest island in the world. There's 850 language languages there. It's considered the last frontier by a lot of people. It's just so remote, uh, so untapped and untouched. And um, really, that's where the whole vision for this idea of Samaritan aviation came from. It was like, there's water everywhere. There's a 700-mile river that we work on now, and, and there's no access, you know, um, in the area we work right now, there's one hospital for 600,000 people and 220,000 of those people live along this 700 mile river. They're one to three to four days away to get to that one hospital when there's any type of emergency. And so that's where the vision for the float planes came in. And, um, you know, there hadn't been a float plane actually in country for 40 years and no one had ever done the type of work that we were felt called to do as far as offering a free service to the people to go uh, help save their life from uh, snake bites to trauma wounds to tribal fighting, uh, lots of pregnancy challenges. And, and to have a, an airplane that can land on the water, you know, uh, one of our jokes is, you know, on our T-shirt is ask us about our 700-mile runway. You know, <laughs> we've got 700 miles of, of right. ru little run, literal runway in, in a very remote area, and we have access to places nobody else does. And so being able to, to reach those people and then use that to share Jesus, that was really the vision of Samaritan Aviation. That came, um, yeah, around, around 19, I was 1994 when I went over there the first time, and it was about uh, 1996, 97 when that, that vision came, and we, we actually uh, started Samaritan in 2000. So a long journey, um, but that's kind of the background, back history of of how Samaritan began, began. We looked around at other organizations. There was nobody doing what we felt called to do. And so we started our own organization. What's been the biggest hurdle? Like thinking back to the early days from starting this, you know, it's like you had an unbelievable foresight to go, kind of go like, okay, like we can either go in there or build landing strips every 50 miles, 100 miles or whatever, like most people have to do. But you're going, no, let's, let's put a 206 on floats and solve the problem that way. And a majority of the population I'm sure is along the river. That's where the fishing is. And so I, I, I'm just, that's probably correct. Is that right? Yeah. And this, on this area, there's yeah, 220,000 people. So you've it. got access immediately to them. Yeah. What, what have been the biggest hurdles? Oh man, the, the hurdles are, um, for one, I was 26. I look like a surf bum from Santa Cruz a little bit. <laughs> and now I'm running around trying to raise money for a, a dream, you know, Aviation is very expensive and trying to raise money for an airplane, trying to describe uh, New Guinea to people in America um, is very difficult. They don't understand this idea that like if you live in L.A. and you have to drive to Dallas to get to the nearest hospital, like 
that doesn't even compute to us here in the states when we have 20 hospitals in a you know 50 mile radius and just a lack of access and the lack of hope when there's an emergency so you're trying to describe new guinea you're trying to describe the need and that's and and then you're on top of that you're describing a dream that's very expensive um and it took us 10 years going around the country telling the story to anyone who would listen uh, before we actually got over there. It was 2010 before I packed up a 206 in a container and we shipped it over there and I actually started working in Papua New Guinea in 2010. So the hurdles were, were many. It was fundraising. It was telling the story. It was also personal growth, you know, finishing school, finishing the flight part of it, um, getting married, having children, just all those things um, as God continue to bless and, and grow the organizations. And in New Guinea, it's all about partnerships. And a lot, a lot of cultures, you know, America, we're, a lot, we're all about business and we get it done. Over there, if without relationships, nothing works. And so that all took time, too, working out the development of relationships with the government, with, with the medical side of what, what happens in New Guinea, trying to understand their, their culture, trying to understand how the system works and then how we could fit into that and make it better, which is really the goal. It wasn't to go over and do our own thing. It was how can we come alongside of what they're doing and make it better. And I think that's that approach uh, made a huge impact on our, has been a huge impact on our success. It takes a lot of time. A lot of people think that, man, if something takes 10 years to launch, that's, that's not necessarily successful in our culture. And to know that that's what's required if you're going to do something on your own and partner and build an organization takes, takes a lot of time. Hey, we got a question from Caleb Paxton, one of our subscribers. Um, he wants to know, was Nate Saint your inspiration to becoming a missionary pilot? The answer would be no. I, I that is one of the most inspirational stories. And yeah. I know that that has had a huge impact yeah. on mission aviation and missionaries. Uh, a lot of my friends that I've, uh, met over in New Guinea that are our missionaries are there because of that story. Um, and, and, and I've actually had a, uh, been privileged to spend several uh, days with Steve Saint, the son of Nate Saint. Oh, no and way. Cool. We really had a chance to, to pick his brain before we got over there and talk a lot about missions and the impact and, and what, you know, what we should be focusing on and, and not focusing on. And, and, uh, he's, he's an amazing storyteller as well. And, um, just the whole story of that and, and meeting um, Minkai, I've met him as well. And uh, just to, to see, yeah, that story is amazing. I mean, to see a Steve Saint sitting next to the guy who speared his father. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that that is just, it's like grace, forgiveness. All of the things that we teach from scripture is like lived out right in front of you. And that's, that's, right. that's an amazing story. But yeah, the book's Jungle Pilot. Is that right? Yeah, Jungle Pilot. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I encourage anyone to to read it and just try to wrap your head around. They, his kids uh, called called this guy Grandpa. He was the one who killed their grandpa uh, in real life, and then he became the grandpa for the for Steve Saint's kids. So I mean, it's a fabulous story and definitely inspirational um, as well. What about you? I mean, have you what's what's the fiercest opposition from? anybody in Papua New Guinea that you faced? I mean, anything similar to that Nate Saint story? You know, one of the things that, that it, it happens over there is there's a lot of tribal wars that happen and I've been right in the middle of them. Um, picking up someone who's been speared or, or you know, uh, whether their arm's been chopped off with a machete or have a spear sticking out of them. Um, I've been in many situations where 
there's things happening all around. People are cutting down. I mean, they're bush houses. People are cutting down houses, chasing people into the bushes. And um, yeah, I mean, I, there was one time when I had a guy coming at me with a, with a machete and um, he just left the tribal fight. And, and thankfully I'm, I'm like the, the only white bald guy, you know, in this, in this area. And so after, after coming at me, he recognized who I was and, and uh, calmed down. But yeah, I mean, it's those, you know, yeah, when you're in the middle of town and things erupt and it's just a different place. It's, I, I, I equated to the wild west. Like literally it's a lot of tribal justice. Um, things happen very quickly. Um, but at the same point, if you, if you're smart and you're in the right place and you know what's going on, I've never had an issue over there either. So it's, it's that, it's that weird dynamic between, um, what's going on around you, safety, being wise and knowing the culture and the language all, all, also helps kind of know what's going on. That's crazy. I can't even imagine showing up being one of the first white people to ever show up and, it, and let alone with an airplane, people just freaking out the first, I mean, do they see airplanes flying around in the jungle or is this a normal thing? Or are you kind of the only one? Well, the, the interesting thing, and you know, there's obviously uh, there's other white people who have been over there, but it's, you know, when you go in with a float plane, there hasn't been one in 40 years. So you've got pe- anyone under 40, no five, six has never seen a plane like that. And then to land on the water taxi, right up water taxi up yep. to their village, park the plane and, and then rescue somebody and, and take the plane into the sky. I can only imagine what is going through their heads, you know, um, to see this plane come out of the sky, land on the water, pick up someone, leave. Um, a lot of these people have never been out of their village that, you know, they haven't been into town. So yeah, you're dealing with a lot of unknowns. I, I mean, just the exposure of the patients, you know, one of the things that we do over there, it, we have a hospital ministry and, and we have someone in there every day praying with the patients, feeding them, clothing them, yeah. sharing Jesus. And, and a lot of these people have never been outside of their village. So you're, you're flying them into this little town. All, so they've never seen the ocean. So imagine if you come over the hill, there's this little mountain before we land. All of a sudden, there's this huge ocean there of water. You've never seen anything but a river. Uh, then there's a car that picks you up. You've never seen a vehicle, electricity. And then now you're in this building with a huge emergency, a lot of craziness going on. Um, thinking a lot of times that the, the patient's not going to make it. And now you're all alone. You, you know, the, the culture's slightly different. There's 70 different dialects just in the area that we work in. And so a lot of these uh, villages, areas have different cultures. And so just different norms, kind of different expectations. So, yeah, there's um, it's pretty wild when you think about what these patients are going through when we, we pick them up, bring them in, just the what they're being exposed to, things that we we can't imagine. You know, I, I don't know. I don't even know how you'd equate it here in the States. Right, right. You know, flying yeah. cars or something. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I remember the first time I took my son uh, flying and uh, we, we took off and I'm just like, man, I guess I remember flying with my dad and I just, and it was the coolest thing in the world to see my dad. Like he was an astronaut to me, you know, and, uh, and just the, the, the awe of flight and, um, and just looking over and seeing that in my son's eyes I, for you do you ever just take a peek over your shoulder and, and see somebody who's been like at right after takeoff, like the first time they're like seeing the world through, you know, from an airplane? Yeah, there's always, it's one or two 
experiences or reactions. One, they're looking out of the window very excitedly. Most of the time, they've got their head down and they're afraid to even look out of the airplane. Really? And I didn't even think I'll, of that. I'll go an hour and a half flight and they're literally they look. won't even look outside and I'll really? be trying to talk to them and encourage, you know, at one point maybe they'll peek out, but then it's like, yeah, just petrified. Unreal. You know? I can't um, imagine. I imagine. can't <laughs> yeah. imagine. Wow. So there's a, man, there's such a, Christians are such a funny bunch. Like I remember a few years ago, this book came out when helping hurts. And then there's another, another book called toxic charity. And, and, and I get it. I get the basis of the book. And I really, what I equate it to is immature missiology. It's like when, when people try to go help, but it's, might be a little selfish or it might be like, I just want to go have an adventure and it's not well thought through and it actually ends up causing more harm for the people they're trying to help so on and so forth. And I, I get the gist of it, but um, have you faced any of that? Like, Oh, here's a white guy with an airplane coming to save the day. Like, you know, like it seems to be such a pop culture topic right now within Bible colleges and seminaries. Like, have you, have you thought about that? Like your, the perception of, you in, in this area that, that might be poor and like maybe the white savior complex, like, have you thought through any of those ideas at all and how do you reconcile them? Yeah. I mean, I think it's become more of a buzzword of the, like you've mentioned the last probably seven, eight years. Uh, I think it's easy from a Western culture like ours to think that, you know, we're better than somebody else because of education or because of privilege that we've had here in the States and we know better. And, you know, that there is that is something you have to fight, really, um, uh, just for being raised the way we are. You get over there and, and you immediately see all the things that, oh, we, we could do this better. Why aren't they doing this? What? And then you start taking a step back and you realize what they're dealing with, what they don't have, the access that they don't have, the, the tribal pressure they're under. Um, they call it the Wontok system in New Guinea, but it's it's part of their culture that, you know, if you're part, part of the same tribe, you know, what's yours is mine and what's mine is yours. So those people that become successful, they've got a whole village coming after them for everything. And when they're working in, whether it's health or government, there's this expectation that they're going to take care of their village. Well, that doesn't work in our idea of, of not being of corruption or non-corruption. Um, and so you can see all these things what you would do differently, but the but until you really live with them and understand just the difference, um, you realize it's not a right or wrong thing a lot of times. It's just a different perspective. And so going over there, you know, the goal I just the goal for us was like, how can we learn what it's like for them? And then how can we be a, a part of the solution? And give them credit when there's they deserve it, you know, uh, be the partner. Don't be the side. Yeah. And there's been a lot of NGOs, uh, Christian, non-Christian, that are that have been in New Guinea. And uh, they've done it wrong, you know, and, and you see it. And you see how they've they've done everything with the church and, and totally just dissed their, but put aside the governments. And then the government's uh, bitter about that. And all the, you know, the church has all this great stuff, the government. And then the, the people feel like the government's not doing anything. And the government's never there, and it's just you guys are amazing, and are you know, and really you're trying to dispel that and say no, we're a partner, and that's what really cool. Forty uh, percent of our funding comes from the Papua New Guinean government. Wow! And that allows us to be that partner, right? And so it's it's building up the government and saying no, the government cares. That's right. They just haven't had the capacity to do this, and so it's not about us versus the government. And yeah. I think that's that's been something that 
maybe over time, we didn't do a great job in the beginning as missionaries in these countries, because there was kind of that, some of that. And I think also the, this idea of, you know, you do have to be careful. In, in, in Papua New Guinea, if, if you give somebody something, um, like, for example, you give them a water tank in their village. I've seen this, so this is a, a story. But, um, you know, when the water tank break, breaks, uh, they're waiting for you to come and fix it. And so the big challenge, and I think part of it is some of these books are trying to address, is how do you get ownership for anything that you do so that there's ownership in it and it doesn't become this thing where, well, hey, the, the school, uh, I was in a school re- recently and the desks were all termites and, you know, turning to dust. And I'm in this community. I'm like, well, why aren't you guys, is anybody going to fix the, the chairs or, you know, the desks? Oh, no, the government bought that for us five years ago. We're waiting for them to come and put new desks in. And, and um, you know, it was this school, the government probably spent 30,000 U.S. on this little school for this remote village. But it's this attitude. So the goal is always to say, how do we give ownership to people? Because once you have ownership, now it's value. You value it. It's like our kids, right? I mean, if you give your kid everything and you never uh, and they never have any ownership in it, but when they when it's part of them and they realize, hey, this is uh, I need to protect this. This is mine versus, oh, this is just dad's stuff or or and maybe that's not a great analogy, but this idea that you want to create ownership and that's part of development too. I think it's like one of our tenants is how do we empower the Papua New Guineans? How do we empower the locals? And so you don't want to just go and, and give, you want to say, Hey, so what we'd like to do is meet people halfway. You know, if there's a, if, if for me personally, if there's school fees that somebody needs help with, or there's, there's a project, I'm like, Hey, I'm up, I'm in 50%. And then they go find the other 50 and then we have a, it's, it's theirs and they have some buy-in, some skin in the game. And I think that, that really is, I've seen, that's the right way to do it ultimately. So you want to be careful that you're not just going in. I've seen people go in and just giving out money in the village. And now that's just creating lots of problems because this guy's over here. He's like, I didn't get any money. And they were giving this money to these people. And in that culture, we don't, you know, there's teachers making 80 there you have Kina as the name, uh, name of their money. So that's like 25 bucks a month. And I've seen white people come in and give out $100 bills. Well, that's like a teacher's salary for a month. And you're just giving this out to everybody. But some people don't get Anyway, it just creates lots of confusion, lots of problems. So your, the approach is important. And I think um, we have to be conscious of that, that we, we are creating ownership. And we're giving them value, yeah. you know, and... Um, not creating expectations too, because once you create expectations, now you got to live up to them. That's and right. so that's always a challenge. We could probably talk about that issue oh, for day. a long time. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's yeah. something we're all tr- still learning and trying to figure out. Well, what I love about you is that, you know, someone we want to feature at nations is that you, you do have a holistic approach to what you do. You're not just there to be the hero pilot. You you're more concerned about the gospel reaching these people in a way that's, that's holistic. It's not just, you know, come raise your hand at one of our events. It's you're, you're right in the trenches with, uh, with these people. And I think that's, that's incredible. And I think that's the journey, right. As, as a missionary or or someone who's co-missioned with, with Jesus, it's to participate with them. It's to, it's to be present. And, and you, you do that so well. Um, I want to ask you about your journey with cancer and the reason you're home right now, not we're not doing this interview in Papua New Guinea. And um, yeah, talk to me a little bit about your journey. 
Yeah, you know, I never thought I'd be 44 and finding out I had B-cell lymphoma and having my airway being cut off by a, a tumor that was growing rapidly in my chest. And, you know, that was where I was uh, about a year and four months ago. Um, I was actually out flying the float plane around America. We have a new plane that we're getting ready to ship over. And I was raising money and awareness and trying to recruit more pilots and more staff. And and I uh, started, started feeling something putting pressure on my, on my larynx and, and I went in and, uh, end up getting a CT scan. They found this six inch tumor in my chest. And, um, all of a sudden I'm dealing with surgeries for, for a month and, um, trying to figure out what's next. And then the whole C word comes in and, and, you know, cancer. And what does that mean? And, um, you know, I think that there was that month there where, one surgeon thought it was an infection and I've, I've had TB in New Guinea. I've, I've had, you know, malaria, other things that just part of the deal. Um, and so you wonder, okay, maybe it's an infection. And then what does that even mean? Can they treat it? Um, so then I'm going with this unknown. So I had one surgery two weeks later, they came back and said, we didn't find any, anything, uh, because it was dead tissue where we, where we pulled the biopsy. So now we got to go in again and cut open your chest and go down in onto your lung. Well, now it's like, okay, now I'm, now then you got to wait another two weeks for answers, right? So this, this goes on and on. And I had a lot of ref time to reflect and, and, uh, you know, you have, you have all these doubts and like, what's going on, God, what are you doing? And for me, I just started thinking back to when God called me, you know, and, and just how clear that was and just how real he's been over the years. Uh, it's just been one miracle after another for Samaritan to even exist. And I've gone around the country talking about how real God is and how he speaks to me. And I came to this, I just sit in my car one day and I'm like, geez, you know, I've been telling this story for 20 years about God calling me. And here I am struggling over, you know, a, a diagnosis I'm waiting to hear. And um, one of the things I just kept coming back to was like, no regrets, you know? Yeah. And, and if I, pass away in the next three months, I've got no regrets. Not that I, I haven't been perfect. I haven't done everything right, but I've lived my life um, to glorify God. I've followed his call. I've done everything I can. And, you know, to me, that was just kind of a big challenge. Like how, you know, how cool is it to be able to say that? And I really want to be able to say that if I lived in 90 on my deathbed and I'm like, I've got no regrets. Right. You know, I've lived my life the best I know. I follow God's call. I've, I've shared his love. I've been a good Samaritan to, to everybody that I can. And, and um, you know, to me, that's a, that's a challenge. How, how do we live with no regrets? I think that's, that's really something that came out of this. And, at, you know, five months of chemo just about killed me. You know, when you lose your eyebrows and, and I, I've already bald, so I didn't lose my hair, but, um, and then you swell up. I mean, all of the things you go through with, with chemo, I mean, it, it's, can't even describe it, you know, and I, I think uh, just dealing with that. And then I, I went through um, radiation as well. And I'm just starting to come back, you know, and get my feel like I'm getting healthy again. And, and I'm just so grateful. You know, every time the sun comes up, you know, I'm just like, ah, oh, I'm still here. You know, God's good. Uh, he hasn't changed, you know, and that was the one thing, too, that I that I thought a lot about is is, you know, our circumstances change, but God doesn't change. Hmm. And you know, one thing about working in Papua New Guinea for the last 10 years in, is, 
you know, death is is part of life over there. You know, in America, I, I yeah, you have some old relatives that'll pass away. My grandpa passed away a few years ago. Um, but for the most part, I don't know a lot of people that are dying right now. Where you know, in my family and and in New Guinea, I, I guess almost every week somebody that I knew was was dying from something, and uh, death just becomes this thing that's right in your face, really, and you can't get away from it. And I'll bring a patient in and a, a little baby, and then they'll die the next day, and or or you bring a mom in that's got a breech birth or something, and then she dies, and the baby's left, and. You know, I remember this one time, I'll, I'll tell a quick story, but I, I brought in this girl with her first pregnancy. She had an obstructive birth and she's like 18, brought her in her, her husband, he, I think he was 19 and very remote village. And I remember bringing him in and, and, uh, you know, coming back in to visit him the next day. And I see them out on the side outside of the hospital and I'm, I'm kind of in a hurry. I've got another flight. I've got this stuff going in my head. It's like, okay, I got to spend five minutes here and talk to these guys. And, you know, I said, Hey, how's it going? And they're like, Hey, we lost, we lost the baby. And I'm, I'm sitting here with this young family and, and all of a sudden, obviously everything stops and I just start talking to him. And, and he looks at me and he's, 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 speaking in Tokpisin, which is the trade language over there that we all speak. And he's like, he's like, Mark, the, we need $2 to us basically to get the, the body out of the morgue. And he said, the, they told us if, if we don't get the body of our baby out by today, that, that it's the morgue is so full that they're stacking bodies on it and our baby's body will be crushed. And I, I remember just like, it's like, how do you, how do you even think about, I mean, we don't think about stuff like that. And, I, and it's just a moment to minister and love those people um, in a way that, yeah, we don't even, can't even imagine dealing with that here in the States, but that's just life over there and, and death is real. And so being faced with death all of these years, you know, you have cancer, it's like, well, a lot of my friends of Papua New Guinea have died over the last few years, and that's just life, right? We're here, and and then and we don't. It's up to God to allow us the time here, and and to make sure we just make the most of our life here. What are we doing in our culture here in America? What are we doing in our communities? And that's always something I try to challenge people with. It's like do something. There's needs all around you, and people are are dying. People are hungry, um, and it's so easy just to be comfortable. And I think in New Guinea, you can't be comfortable. It's right in your face. And God gives you moments every day. And you've got to be on your toes because it challenges you. It challenges your faith. It challenges your thoughts of, you know, a little flannel graph story that I learned in Sunday school it doesn't fit a lot of times over New, when you're in dealing with situations like that. And that's where the faith comes in, the trust that God has a plan and he knows. Wow. <clears throat> that's a lot. I, I love your outlook on comfort because I think that's one of the things that our culture is consumed with. It's like, you know, and I think ultimately comfort's a prison spiritually. And um, where are you at today with, with the cancer? Um, what's, what's going on? 
Yeah, I mean, I I had a scan in January, and and uh, so far so good. Good. The, the word remission was used. Yes. So I've got another uh, scan coming up in April, and um, you know, we, we God's in charge, and we just yeah. keep moving. Um, but yeah, I just can't. You know, I just turned forty six. You know, so I was forty four when this came up. I'm forty six now, and and I'm still here. Feeling good, ready to go. <laughs> Keep so, going, man. Yeah. yeah, like I'm just getting started. So hey, God's allowing me another day. So it's good. Awesome. Well, hey, we got a, a video question here. I'm gonna pull up. Hey, Mark. Uh, my name is Jason Anstrand. I'm a, a 206 pilot here in Idaho, and have a couple questions. Uh, first, um, we, we fly in the backcountry some too, and I know in Indonesia you're in off airport situations. Uh, do you have any near misses that you feel uh, comfortable uh, sharing or talking about? Um, and you know, the pilot side of me is always curious in this. Um, from a standpoint of believers, um, you know, aviation has a mystique, uh, and I think there's a group of people who really get enthralled with flying. Uh, do you notice that in Indonesia, and does it open the door to the gospel? Uh, thanks. Cool. Yeah, it's from uh, Jason Anstrand out of Boise, Idaho, and. Uh, I get to fly his 182, so uh, yeah, he's he's an awesome guy. They got a ranch in the backcountry that they they used it, the 182, and their 206 to get in and out of. And uh, it's actually my brother-in-law. So yeah, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, the first question where we were operating, and we were told by other organizations it could never be done, you know. And I think that's part of our story. But it was like it's too dangerous. The you know, if you can imagine a river that's thousand feet wide in some places that rises and falls up to 20 feet in three, four days. Um, I mean, sometimes I'll come into to a, a village and my wing is, my floats are above the, right on the bank. Other times I'll come in and it's 20, the river, the same spot is 20 feet. The bank is 20 feet above the wings. Uh, other times I'll come in and they're the wings a foot over the bank and you're worried about getting out of the, off the float and whoever's standing on the float, the wing's going to hit the side of the bank. You're parked between a couple trees that are, you know, there's no docks it, and it's different every time. Whirlpools, you've got fishing nets, people in canoes. Uh, cro- I've, we've, one of our pilots had to go around because a crocodile came up right where he was landing. <laughs> he had to go around. I have seen crocodiles, but thankfully after I've landed, uh, come up. But, you know, you're dealing with the logs. I've seen these trees 50 foot long with, uh, you know, 30 feet high roots sticking up, floating down. It looks like a house is floating down at you. So you're, you're timing your departures, you're timing your landings around logs and the space that you have, trying to, trying to get out of the current areas. And, um, you know, on the other, other hand, the, the river is a color of, of chocolate, so you can't see five inches below it. And so a lot of, um, of what you're doing is, is trying to make decisions and, uh, from the air, places you've never been before. And for me, I was the first one to go in most of these places with a float plane and so you're relying on villagers that and everybody wants you there so everybody's telling you that the water's great and that it's you know eight feet deep and it's two (laughs) miles long and and all of these things then you get in there and you realize yeah that's that's not it at all and there's there it's uh, so a lot of that was judgment calls in the early days but you know i think a one one particular uh event that i had i I was called into this area in the colorado river and it, it was I never landed there before and, and they didn't have a, any fuel for their boat motor. And so they were doing the paddle thing and it was like, I could either land down at this river or they're going to have to paddle for hours. 
up the river for me to land uh, where I normally land. And so this girl had cerebral malaria, so she's unconscious. I've never landed this stretch. I kind of look at it on the map, think, okay, I can pull this off, but it's going to take about, you know, almost a 90 degree turn in the middle of my run out. So I'm, I'm, you know, I go out there and it was part of the pressure as a pilot, you know, the decision-making process, but I'm flying over of uh, this, this uh, space in the river and down below is, is the medical worker and this unconscious girl. And I can see her in the canoe. They're just in this hand hewn out canoe. Uh, and I start flying it. I'm trying to figure out, can I get back off the water? You know, landing is always easy uh, in these areas because the plane, you have the current to slow you down and, and you only need about six, 800 feet to land anyways. But take off uh, in this hot environment with a load, um, you know, you're talking about triple that. And there's trees at the end and all these other things. So I'm trying to make this decision. And I spent 15 minutes flying in, down into the river. Can I make it? Trying to fly my path out, trying to pick out my spot where I would, you know, go full throttle on takeoff on the other end. And um, I finally decided to go for it. And, you know, I land, I get in there, load this little girl up and back the plane up as far into the bushes as I can, you know, hit, hit the throttle. And I make this turn, um, super tight turn, you know, on the step and everything works. I mean, it's like all the training, everything that I had ever worked towards all came together in this one moment because it was basically, it was one of those places if everything didn't go perfect, you're in trouble. We're in trouble. And we managed to get out of there. And I remember landing back in WeWack where we're based. And I just like, I don't even know how we pulled that off. And we've never, I've never been back there again. <laughs> <laughs> I just tell them to go up to the normal spot. That was a learning experience. But, um, you know, I'll tell you one other story. One of the most dangerous things is docking and undocking. So in a float plane, there's no docks. We call it docking. But you're basically just pulling along the side of the river. Like I said, a lot of times whirlpools, you've got wind, wind, you have currents, you have debris, and then you have trees, big trees that you're parking between and your wings are sticking out 20 feet on each side. So you're parked in between these trees. And I remember, you know, I'd been there my first two and a half years and, and I was my last flight before I was going back to America. And, you know, the goal is obviously how can we go without having any incidents the whole time? And since your last flight, so I was a little bit stress like okay i gotta make this perfect because i just want to shut this plane down you know get get home and know that i've succeeded without having any issues with the flying side so i load the patient in i get the nurse and uh you know a lot of times the villagers actually help us turn the plane so they're out on the wing they turn the plane and then i start it and it catches and off we go so i start the plane and it's a hot start which pilots will understand this it's a bit it takes a little bit more for the, Especially in the 206. In the 206 they they yeah. don't like to start when <laughs> they're, they're hot. Like, yeah, and it's real hot in New Guinea because it's already hot to start with. And so a lot of vapor going on. So the fuel doesn't like to go through and um, get vapor lock. And so I, I start the engine and it kicks over twice. They let me go. And as soon as they let me go, the current hit the nose and started to pull me back. And the engine quit. And I remember I literally... Uh, I look over and we're heading right at a tree with the wing and I shut, I start to shut the plane off. Cause I'm like, I'm just going to deal with whatever happens. I'm going to hit the tree. There's nothing I can do. And this guy 
comes flying out of the bushes. There was a lot of bushes and trees right next to the river. And literally, he comes in the air. I still don't know if, I, I don't know if it's an angel. <laughs> but this guy literally flies through the air, grabs the wing, and pushes it as hard as he can, turns the plane. I was in the process of turning the ignition off to get, and I kicked it back on. The engine caught, and I, and I went out. And I just remember, like, that was incredible. I got back, was able to, to go home back to the States without hitting anything. And I uh, was just so grateful. But that, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of, of those type of situations. And, you know, I've been, I've been on the side of the river and the plane's going down the river without me in circles while I'm trying to keep it off the bank because I jumped out to grab it in a wind gust. I mean, there's, there's so many things that could go wrong. We've still had no incidences, no accidents. I think I've got 1,250 flights over there, wow. you know, and God's been good. I mean, that's the thing. That's a story about Samaritan. It's, it's a God story. It really is. It's not about me or our staff. We have amazing staff. But God just created one miracle after another. And um, back to earlier, I just wanted to follow up on this. You talked about the 10 years and what was the biggest hurdle that we had and to get over there. But I, you know, I look back and go, uh, there's people that started supporting us, for, that supported us financially for 10 years before we ever got there. And I think, wow, talk about heroes. Yeah. Like people believed in the call on our life. People believed in the dream that God had given us to monthly give for 10 years before they actually saw us arrive over there. And to me, that still is very humbling and it, it blows my mind. And I get to go around and meet those people and hang out with them and just say, thanks. You know, without you guys believing in the call, without you guys following the God calling you to give, None of this would have happened, and uh, you know that's that 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 story is is unbelievable to me because, like you said, America. If it doesn't happen in three years, you failed. Right. And so to go for ten years, and my wife's an a angel as well for her to put up with all of this <laughs> <laughs> for ten years, and yeah. we're going in six months, uh, and then we're not going in six months. Oh, we're going we're going in six months. I think I pulled that off on her about six times. Oh my gosh. Um, and tough. Uh, she's amazing and uh, was as, as a huge part of our success over there. But Well, it's a humbling thing too as a leader. It's like God hasn't just called you to this. He's called everybody who's involved with and including those who financially support. That's always a weird thing asking for money. and But it's not a weird thing when you say, hey, right now it's going to cost us thousand bucks to get my airplane in here and save this gal's life who's got this malaria that's she's in a coma. Like, dude, writing a check right now, like no problem, but it's hard to cast vision and help people to see what it's like actually in Papua New Guinea. When, you know, my, my biggest struggle today was like, where am I going to get breakfast? Am I going to make it myself, buy it on the way to work? Does my truck have gas in it? I mean, that's my struggle for the day. And it's hard to, in my reality, understand your reality. And I think you've done a good job in, in helping people see that. And then ultimately the Holy Spirit does that too. It's like, he's, he's brought the right partners along and, and uh, wow, it's incredible. We've got a, we got a question here from uh, one of our listeners and subscribers, Sarah Garrett. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, what was something unexpected about PNG positive or negative that you wish you would have known before going over there? I think that 
you know, on a positive side, I, I don't know about it, wishing I had known, but it, you know, I have family over there. You know, I have a grandma, Papua New Guinean grandma. I have a Papua New Guinean sister, uh, nieces, uh, nephews, brothers. Um, that's part of the culture that's so amazing, you know, that I've been, my wife and I and our family have been adopted into a tribe over there. I actually have a name that a tribe has given me. Um, Kavak is my village name. And, you know, it's, that's a part of that I never thought would, would happen. And, and that's just an amazing part of their culture where you can literally be part of a family um, over there. In America, you know, we're very family oriented as far as our families, but to like, to accept somebody in, that's a big step. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's, that's just a, a normal thing over there um, as far as it just the, how our relationships grew with these different uh, tribal members, and now we became family. Um, and that's, that's awesome. You know, I think that's probably the hardest part of me not, one of the hardest parts of me not being able to go back. It's been about a year and a half now, and I'm hoping to get back in the next few months. But gosh, I miss my family sure you know i miss my family when i'm over there i miss my u.s family but now i'm in the u.s and i miss my of course Guinea family yeah um and that 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 part's amazing i never i never dreamed about uh or thought about that part another question from ashley and i'm not even going to try to pronounce her last name um but she uh, asks how did you get involved with nations yeah that's an interesting well it's Catherine, Catherine mcgrath, Catherine McGrath. Yeah. um she came over and uh, was was our videographer intern for a bit, and um, and then she introduced me. I think she was doing a story for you guys. It was right. part of her trip, and yep. uh, so there you go. Yeah, Catherine's amazing. She's uh, one of our photographers, and uh, she's like three foot two, but she is all tough girl. Like she is a world changer, and I I just love Catherine. She's I she was in our college group at church, and so that's how I got to know her and. You know, she just, she has that ambition to just participate in the tough things. And, you know, I just sat with her at this table uh, last week or the week before. And she's like, Joel, I'm ready to go again. Where are we going? And don't give me somewhere easy. I'm like, okay. So she's been great. Men, she's men, mentored my daughter as well. My daughter's a, now a freshman in college. But awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Been really cool. To when have she was over there, she saw some tough stuff. I know she saw some, the tribal warfare stuff and she came home. Yeah. Kind of. Kind yeah, of had to deal with some stuff a bit. Yeah. I, you know, that's, that's part of, you know, the unknown, I guess, part of that follow up on that question, you know, um, I always never thought I did well with blood. I always kind of got a little bit woozy, you know, not really knowing I wasn't a EMT. I didn't work in a hospital, but now here I am. Um, you know, I remember the first time I picked up a guy that had his hand chopped off and, um, it happened in the evening, a soccer game. He he uh, was gloating over his win, and one of his uncles decided that he was being a bit too proud, and and he lost his hand. And so we talked him through how to kind of bandage it up and triage, you know, um, put a tourniquet on it just so he could survive the night. And got there at first light. I, I'll never forget. I'm standing on the front of the float, and got the nurse, and we're. They're bringing the head of about a 60-foot canoe. It was a really big tree that <laughs> they cut in. And they come up, and this this lady holds up this hand in a plastic bag. Oh, my gosh. And and says, do you do you need this? And it had been too long. Right. You know, there was no ice out there. There's no electricity or sure. anything out in these areas. But I remember just like, wow, okay, now uh, 
I've got to get in flight. I got to fly this airplane now. I just saw this. I see this guy's missing his arm and just there's blood everywhere. And yeah, I mean, you never know. <laughs> I didn't know how I was going to respond until that moment. And I was like, focus, let's go. Yeah. Um, but that's part of it. I mean, you know, you, you pick up women that have been abused. I mean, uh, about 70% of the women in Papua New Guinea are abused. And there's, there's just a lot of issues. Um, with uh, spousal things going on. And how do you deal with that, man? How do you, how do you like roll in with your airplane and is, is the, is the guy standing there on the bank and like, like how, I mean, gosh, that's, that's a tough one for me. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, usually he's gone, you know, and, uh, she's coming in with a sister or an aunt or something. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's some of the most heart wrenching parts of it. I mean, there's actually, you know, at the hospital, you'll see a sign that says if it's, if it's spousal abuse, it's, you know, it's more money to be treated at the hospital than if it's not. And so it, it's, uh, it's something that is very, uh, why is that? It's just, it's just, uh, something that's, yeah, they're trying to, but they're trying to, to penalize the husband for beating his oh, wife. Okay. But reality is he penalizes the wife because she's the one they're having to pay for it. Right. <laughs> He's nowhere to be found, but um, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a hard one. That's not something you can, uh, yeah, you ever get used to. Um, and like I said, we're, we're dealing with very remote communities. So the guy's never there, you know, he's gone and he's, he'll run away for a few weeks and you'll, you know, he's three days away from town. It's not like anything's going to happen. How do you stay spiritually healthy? Like day in, day out. I mean, you're seeing stuff that most people don't see. How do you remind yourself of the mission that God's called you to like, what are your spiritual routines, habits, rhythms, whatever you want to call it? Yeah, I'm an avid reader. So I read, I read a lot. Um, I think that, you know, just the quiet time, making sure you're reading the word and, um, feeding yourself uh, that way. Um, we would watch videos, you know, when I first got there, it was dial up internet. So it was like, <laughs> You weren't even, it took you 30 minutes literally to send an email when I first got there. And then over the years, like we have satellite internet now and we're actually able to watch videos, you know, so we could watch pastors and streaming videos and stuff. So, you know, you have church. Uh, I found um, for us, home church was a big thing because I was, when I was there, I was there for five years by myself, fixing the planes, flying the planes, doing it all. And I, sometimes I'd go 21 days in a row on flights, you know, and. Um, looking back, it wasn't the smartest thing I, that I did, but I just couldn't, I had a hard time saying no Sure. and someone's dying and I would just keep going. And so, uh, home church was a big deal for our family, my, my wife and three kids. And, um, those are some great memories going to the national Papua New Guinea churches. Uh, and then we'd have, we'd have a group every couple of weeks that we get together, the other missionaries, uh, that were in the town we lived in. And so we would get together and worship and have some fellowship have some fellowship. So do your kids feel culture shock when they come back? Do they feel more PNG or more us? What, where do they kind of find themselves? Yeah, absolutely. They're I, third culture they're kids. Still right? dealing with it. You know? Yeah. I mean, I remember them coming back a few different times and just not knowing what to do, what to say. Um, PNG it's, it's a very direct, you know, kind of culture. I, 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 I got to tell you a funny story. Um, probably doesn't sound funny when I tell it, but it ends, it ends kind of funny. But you know, my son played soccer with the local kids every day and he'd go across the street. There's a little soccer field, a little field, and there's bare feet. And they just go, 
kick around a soccer ball or a water bottle, whatever they had. Um, and uh, so he'd go every day. And one day, you know, one of the things, he, my son Drake, he's a big soccer player here in the States now. He's, he's on a club team and hoping to play D1 college. And he's, you know, pretty, pretty talented. And so he's over there. And one of his things that he'd go around all the kids up in the, in the, in the neighborhood, the little area we lived in. And so he would go around and he would find the kids and, okay, come on, guys. And he was about 12 or 13. One day he goes over there and he's trying to find his buddy. And, and uh, so he's kind of in his, in his little area by his house. And, um, and all of a sudden this guy comes out, his friend comes out of the bushes uh, with a machete over his head. And he's just yelling at Drake. My son, so Drake takes off running, and he's booking it, and he's pretty fast, but he's got his backpack on, and this guy's gaining on him, so he drops his backpack, and this guy's got this machete over his head, and he's screaming, and Drake uh, falls down on the ground, and the guy's over top of him with his machete, and, and then he just breaks out this big smile, and he says, April Fool's. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my my son came home and he just kind of put his backpack down and he just kind of went in the other room. And How old was he He's like 12, 13 years oh old. Oh my gosh. And, uh, you know, he's like, dad, I thought I was, I was done, you know, but I, it's just, <laughs> you, you know, you don't have that experience in America. No, you know? no. <laughs> oh my gosh. And so yeah, there's, there was some definite adjustments, you know, that, that happened. Both sides. Holy um, cow! There's there's the good and the bad on on both sides, and um, it's funny when I, when we're there, they all can't wait to come back to America. When we're in America, they can't wait to get back to New sure. Guinea. So it's just that kind of the grass is greener on the other side. But then you realize, wow, what an amazing life I had over there. Yeah. And we were we really uh, had them part of everything. Our kids were in the hospital with us uh, when we'd go visit patients. They they worked in the clinic. My daughter worked in the clinic. The kids would go help at the uh, medical store where they store medical supplies and i mean they were very involved they'd go on flights medicine delivery flights uh with me and um we really felt like they needed to be part of what we were doing any of them want to be pilots you know it's funny yeah they don't <laughs> my daughter was wanting to be a nurse until she worked in the maternity ward at the hospital in in WeWAC and realized that that wasn't what god wanted her to do so <laughs> but they're uh, they're awesome they're awesome kids i'm i'm blessed all right, here's a couple hot questions for you. Ready for this? Favorite PNG food? PNG food. I mean, the fish. You know, we live on the ocean. Yeah. And um, it it's it's amazing uh, the fishing. And then in the village on the river, they smoke this the fish uh, that they catch in the river, and that's just like this taste that you can't replicate. You can't get it this, here. This uh, doesn't this come from smoke. Costco. You're picking the bones out, you know. But, but it's like uh, so good. Yeah. Uh, favorite aviation movie of all time? Aviation movie. Um, you know, what's funny is when I was a kid, and this is, there was an IMAX movie that we would watch at the Smithsonian that was about this pilot. And it was like you'd go into the big screen, and this guy w would fly his, his biplane. And, uh, and I still remember he was doing, he like acted like he fell out, and he had a parachute on and did all this stuff, but over like the Grand Canyon. I, mean, I think those those type of things had a huge impact on me. Um, watching World War II uh, movies too, like the real World War II movies when you see the the pilots, because my grandpa flew. And then in New Guinea, there's World War II. Like the airport we were, we fly out of, there's bomb craters all 
along the side of it. Still. Still, there's anti-aircraft guns up on the hill. Still, uh, big ones. You know that fully articulating, ten foot barrels, and they're up on the hill. There's there's tanks. So you you know in New Guinea, like the war. I was there. My very, grandfather fought in Kanji. That feels very close, even though it's been that long. So I think that watching the World War II movies, I found a bomber in, in the brush bushes out in the New Guinea as well. One time when I was flying, I look over and there's this B twenty five in the grass. That was a bit of a shock. Yeah. But it kind of brings back that whole. Sure. <laughs> the war is right there. But yeah, it's a war movies. Favorite surfer. We haven't even talked about surfing, but you're a big surfer. So who's your, who's your favorite surfer? Well, I mean, come on, Kelly Slater, you know, yeah. he's the man and yeah. uh, we're, he's not much, that much older than me. Yeah, You guys are both bald. So. We're bald. Uh, I mean. Somebody asked me if I was <laughs> Kelly Slater. I was, uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny <laughs> yep, story. This a couple weeks ago and they came up to me and said, Hey, you know, I know it's kind of funny. I almost thought about tricking them but i didn't <laughs> <laughs> favorite airplane favorite airplane i you know when it comes to the the uh, the float plane i obviously what we use is uh, is awesome because of what it does you know it saves lives you can get a patient in there a stretcher in there i got a chance to fly an l39 jet military jet a couple weeks about a month and a half ago that was pretty amazing um and i at about two weeks ago i flew a pitts s2 uh, biplane and did some pretty severe aerobatics. So that was wow. a lot here of fun in, here in San Diego. No, it was back in Texas, but oh. I was back in Indiana flying a L 39 back in December. And uh, yeah, I've got photos on my Instagram stuff, but it, it, it was pretty spectacular. That's unreal. Yeah. <laughs> Doing aerobatics in a military plane going that fast is pretty sweet. Will top gun Two be amazing. Are you even a Top Gun fan? Yeah, you know, I did like Top Gun, and I, it didn't even come to my to my mind um, when you asked about the, the aviation movies. I, it's hard to know. I, I, I think it really depends on, on if Tom Cruise can still bring it or not. <laughs> that, like, shaped our generation. I think all, every pilot our age, it's like, well, we watched Top Gun. Yeah. Taught us how to cuss. It taught us to love airplanes. That's <laughs> probably why we live in San Diego. Yeah. Um, all right. Correct departure radio call. Uh, you say your call sign taking runway three, six, or do you say call sign departing runway three, six? This is a big one in aviation community. It really depends on how uh, relaxed you are. You know, uh, <laughs> you backcountry pilots, you're all, yeah, you're you all can say like, taking it, but you're not supposed to say yeah. taking it, but you know, we all have done it. What do you yeah. say? What do you say? Um, I probably say taken to be honest because <laughs> in uh, in New Guinea your call signs are different. It's really it's called it's it's a bit um, backwards. We we a big part of learning to fly over there is actually learning the radio. It was it was a one of the big struggles all of our pilots face because it's it's totally very different than how we call signs here. And you don't you call you don't it's not a pattern. It's called a circuit over there. Um, and you call time to land. You don't call uh, like you don't say you're on a five mile. You could say you're on a five mile 45, but, um, or you're 10 miles out, but you're always given your landing time, which oh, we don't give here, Yeah, which is really cool because if you have a jet going, you know, 400 miles an hour and you have a 206 going 105, you don't really care how far away each of those planes are. What you care about is what time are they going to get to the yeah. actual runway? Okay. So that, that jet could be 80 miles away and I could be 10 miles away. And what I care about is, is he arriving the same time I am? Sure. So I think they actually get it right. When it comes to that, that's pretty cool. Takes takes into account the 
doesn't matter how fast you're going. It's what time you're going to get there. Right, right. And we go, you know, we have a jet that says he's 10 miles out. And we have a 152 that's going 80 miles an hour that says he's 10 miles an hour. You know, they're several minutes apart on arrival time. So anyway. How do we follow your journey? Uh, website, yeah, social media? Yeah, you can go to SamaritanAviation.org. Uh, we are on Facebook as well, Instagram. Uh, you can follow me at, at Mark.Palm uh, on Instagram or just MarkPalm on on. Uh, Facebook, but I, if I could tell you a, a one a story, yeah. you know that that I think would be uh, be uh, uh, inspirational. I about a year and a half ago, I was over there, and the uh, the ambassador from the U.S. Uh, living in Papua New Guinea uh, came in to help us uh, celebrate our new airplane. So we had a new float plane that was coming in. I um, I'd become friends with her, and um, so she wanted to come in and help with the presentation, and so. We invited her in, and it's a big honor to have a U.S. ambassador, you know, come yeah. to your house and and care enough to to fly into where we at. where we live. You can only fly in; there's no roads. So she came in, and she said, "I'll do it on one condition that you fly me out to the Sepik River because the Sepik River, where we work, you know." She said, "That's uh, I followed some uh, Margaret Mead was a lady, the social sociologist, and so she's like, I read about the Sepik as a little girl, and I want to see it. So we fly out there and." Um, first time landing there in the new airplane. So I let the village know we were coming and I was bringing a VIP. And so my wife and I, the ambassador, the district provincial administrator uh, came out there. So we land and, and it's a full, we call it a sing sing over there. So they're all dressed in their national grass skirts and they're all painted up and they're dancing and beating the kundu drums. And we arrive and I mean, it's, there's probably four or 500 people all crowded around and the sing sing group there's probably 30 or 40 that are all dressed up for the sing sing and they're throwing flowers on us and we get out of the plane and you know it's just this amazing welcome we get like billums which is a woven basket that they put around our necks and you know the, there's a little eight poster that we work at and it's it's literally it's fallen down but it's all they have it's it's probably 20 by 30 the whole thing it's got a little tin roof on it the bed in there doesn't doesn't really work. It's kind of falling apart, and there's no medical equipment in there at all. But that's their aid post, and so uh, they usher us over. There's four chairs, plastic chairs sitting there, and we sit down, and then the crowd just kind of comes in, and it's all around. And so in in this culture, that you know, you have to make a speech. That's kind of how it works. So the the village guy stands up and introduces us, makes a speech. Then I have to get up and make. Uh, speech and this is all in the local language, in language, trade language, and then the uh, the ambassador has to make a speech, and and then you know as this goes on and on, and uh, I remember uh, so so then the medical person gets up and makes a speech, and at this point we'd been there nine years, and uh, so she starts talking about the impact that Samaritan Aviation has had in that village, and it's one of 128 villages that we work in. And uh, as she was, uh, you know, they bring a, a lady out of the, uh, out of the audience and uh, her and her family, her, her husband, her daughter, and it's the first patient we ever flew in on Good Friday of 2010. You know, I've gone around the world, uh, America for 10 years telling people, if you just help us, we can get there, we can save lives, we can share Jesus. And I remember the first time we got the call, I go out, the weather's terrible. If you're a pilot, you understand it's always, everything's going wrong, but you, we fought through it. We got down. They brought this lady unconscious. We brought her in to WeWAC. 
She'd been in labor for two days. And uh, I remember coming into the hospital the next day and walking in, and there she is holding this little baby boy. And it was the first time that I had just, like, seen what I had been sharing with people. And I remember just how grateful I was to be part of that moment. And uh, funny stories, they asked us to name the baby, that which is a huge honor. So my wife and I, we went through, we got a scripture. We, we, we spent hours laboring over it because we knew it was a, this big honor. And we had the name, we typed it up. We had the scripture <laughs> listed. We'd just been in country for two months, you know. And we go back in and, and we're like, we have, we have the name. And, and we're all excited. And they're like, oh. Uh, we already gave the baby a name and we named him Mark after you. And I was like, what? So, so there's baby Mark. So we're in this village. We're all making speeches. The, vill- the, the village nurse makes this uh, speech and then brings out this family. And there's baby Mark only. He's nine years old now. Wow. And his mom, Antonia, and his, and his sister, her name's Vanilla, and her husband. And, and uh, so, you know, it was just that gratefulness. We got sure. a basket. We... we we shared a hug and then they pulled another boy out of the audience. He's five, six years old. He'd had cerebral malaria. We'd saved his life. And then they pulled out another woman who had twin babies and we'd brought her in and saved both twins and her. And this went on for like 30 minutes where they just kept bringing Unreal. people out of the audience. And I remember just sitting there, just overwhelmed you know, to be able to see that and realize this is one village that we're impacting. And as I was looking out, I'm, I'm sitting, if you can picture, I've got this little aid post behind me, a few hundred feet to the edge of this river. It's about 600 feet wide and the float plane's sitting there. And I just had this, this picture that came to my head and it was of a father who, his wife's been in labor for three days. He's come and he, and he has no hope. And he's given up. And then someone says, have you called Samaritan? And then what it must be like to hear that airplane. You know, airplanes, our airplanes are very loud. In America, we hate, people hate airplane noise and they make complaints and they charge you money if you, I've gotten warnings in Santa Monica for being too loud on takeoff over there. But in New Guinea, that's the sound of hope. And to have this plane land, pick up your wife, fly her in, to safety and to save her and the baby. And we don't charge for any of our flights. And this idea of grace, we're trying to explain grace in a culture where a gift is an obligation. If you give somebody something for anything, they're writing down what you gave them, and then you're expected fully to pay that back later on. And so to be able to talk about grace, but have this picture of grace, which is the airplane, we come in, we don't charge, we save their life, we don't have any expectations, and it's a free gift. And so I feel like Samaritan aviation is this picture of grace and God's grace to those people in the remote villages. And as I was flying back with the ambassador, we start talking about this word hope. And what a powerful word that is. You know, think about it. if we don't have hope, what do you have? You've got, you have nothing. And, and the fact that we can be, uh, the word that came to me was hope in action. And that's really what Samaritan aviation is. We're hope in action to those people and giving them hope and access where there is none and being able to share Jesus and say, God loves you. That's why we're here. And he, he loved me. He gave his life for me. He gave his life for you. And he's got a free gift of salvation. You just have to accept it. Um, that's what Samaritan Aviation is all about. And that's what we're, 
we're trying to do. We're just being the hands and feet of Jesus. We're following his call. We're, we're blown away by the support we've had 20 years in. Uh, we have a third airplane that's getting ready to go over there. We're looking to expanding over to the western or southern side of the island. Um, more staff are coming on board the next year. Looks like we have several staff families joining us. Uh, we're looking for more staff, but God, God is providing uh, through this COVID time, through my cancer, yeah. through all these things. Uh, I feel like we're just, we're just getting started, and I can't wait to see what God's going to do. Well, I just need somebody to come and take my job at Nations Media so I can come fly airplanes for you. That's my... You, you, Keep pressing on, man. <laughs> I love uh, well, I love that you, you're someone who... Um, you know, sometimes we think these, these passions, like aviation or, or whatever it may be, or, you know, or, or just our sin nature, like, oh, we're idolizing these things. I think God puts those things in our lives, that fascination with flying airplanes and airplanes for a purpose and a reason. That I think we need to pay attention to those things sometimes because that's how he might want to administer the gospel to people in these communities and whatnot. And you've, you've lived that out and you don't idolize airplanes. You love airplanes, but... You use them to uh, to take the gospel to pl- to places that, man, no church in America would ever be able to take the gospel to, and uh, I think that's incredible. And I just we you know we view you as a reformer, someone who is willing to posture yourself in the difficult places to bring about gospel reconciliation, hope, and salvation. And uh, yeah, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast today. Hey, we you got you got something cool for me this hat, which I love. Do you guys have merch on your website? We do. Yeah. Samaritanaviation.org. This is is good stuff right here. And so, um, in a PNG fashion, we can't, we can't let you just give us gifts. We got to give you something. So we got you a t-shirt here. We got you some new stickers and uh, volume, volume six. So there you go. There you go. That's our latest. That's uh, down in South Philippines in your neck of the woods. Well, you guys do an amazing job of, of telling stories and, um, yeah, it's really cool. Well, thanks brother. Why? Well, I, I just think everybody needs to hear about people like you. That's it. Like, I think we've done a bad job as Christians telling the best stories. We've told the mediocre stories. We're known for our worst stories. <laughs> when you ask your unsafe friends, like, what do you think about Christianity? It's like, well, you're going to hear a lot, but I mean, hearing stories, I wish, I wish all my unsafe friends could just see what living out the hands and feet of Jesus looks like. And you exemplify that. So thanks, brother. Well, I'm humbled and blessed. Thanks for being here. That's been good. Thanks.